What if you had everything? Wisdom, power, romance, unlimited wealth, and scores of people to do whatever you wanted. What would you do with it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Penn from Bible 805, and today we're going to talk about that very situation. Now, most of us will never have to contemplate those kind of challenges, but we're going to look today at someone who did in our lesson, Solomon, the uses and abuses of wisdom, power, and love. Here's where we are in going through the Bible. We just finished talking about his father, David. David trusted God from his youth. He killed the lion. He killed a bear. He killed Goliath that everybody knows about. He was anointed as king when he was very young, but he had to wait probably between 10 to 15 years before he actually became king of the land. As a king, he united all of Israel. He was a military and organizational success. He sinned. He suffered for it greatly, but he repented and was forgiven. In his later years, he made preparations for every part of the temple, including editing the Psalms and writing musical directions for temple worship. Solomon, of course, is his successor. Now, it's interesting that Solomon was actually God's choice. He was Bathsheba's second son. He was his tenth son overall, and he was loved by God from his birth. In 2 Samuel 12, it says, Then David comforted Bathsheba. She gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. And the Lord loved the baby and sent congratulations and blessings through Nathan the prophet. David nicknamed the baby Jedidiah, meaning beloved of Jehovah. Solomon, of course, becomes king. Now, there was some intrigue and attempt by his brother for the crown, but he was eventually made king. And David gives him this charge. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him. Keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Solomon knew God's requirements from the start, and that obeying his law was to be the non-negotiable foundation of his life. Now, he started out well. He started with immense amounts of wealth given to him by his father for the construction of the temple. Then God appears to him and tells Solomon to ask for anything he wants. He asks for wisdom, and God gives it to him, plus the promise of every material blessing. He builds a temple, plus he builds palaces and fortresses and other public works. Now his life progresses. At various times in his life, he writes the Song of Solomon, he writes Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, plus Psalm 72 and 127. Now these books, the way we're going to talk about Solomon's life, these books really mirror a progression of his life, and I'm going to go through them. But first, I'm going to go over an important review 
overview of the genre of these books because as we've talked about in other lessons it's very important that you understand the genre the type of the book before you read it now the genre of these books is part of what is known as the wisdom literature of the Bible now about wisdom literature Job is also part of this genre and I would encourage you to maybe go back and review the lessons on that the cautions that I gave you on the book of Job apply here as well now as a reminder the the advice and the accusations of Job's friends sound good in parts until you get to the end where God says their counsel was all wrong that final statement is God's commentary on the entire book and without it the individual passages can be very misleading these books and this is one of the key characteristics of wisdom literature these books must be read as a whole Pulling verses out of context in any of the wisdom literature is extremely misleading, and it often ends in incorrect interpretations. Often the whole point of the book is not revealed until the end. That's what it was in Job. And God's state when, when God gives a statement that the view of his friends was wrong. This is also true in Ecclesiastes. Now, I'm going to emphasize that when we get to Ecclesiastes, but first I'm going to go through some other things and talk about the different books that he wrote and what we can learn from them. First of all, Song of Solomon. Most likely, this was the first book he wrote. It was written when he was obviously quite a bit younger than he is in the other books. It's a picture of love. It's a picture of romance. Now, some commentaries take it as an analogy of the love of Christ for the church, but in my humble opinion, I think that gets a little weird. And I don't think you have to stretch it to be that. God celebrates human love. He's given that to us. And it's really, it, it's just fine to read it as the view of a young man who is truly in love and a celebration of human love. It includes also, and this is what I want to emphasize out of the book, it has the picture of a wonderful component of human love. And this is near the end of the book where the beloved describes herself as one who, and this is what she says in 8.10, thus I have become in his eyes like one bringing contentment. Now contentment or favor in some translations, if you look at the Hebrew, this, this is kind of neat I think, it's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, and I've talked about this before, and it's such a major theme, such a major word throughout all of the Old Testament, because shalom not only means peace, most people know about know that, but it's completeness, it's welfare, it's safety and soundness, it's tranquility and quiet contentment, uh, it's friendship, um, and it's it's a picture of God's. Re- ideal relationship with us and so in this romantic relationship the most wonderful thing that she brings to it that is part of their relationship is shalom is peace is contentment and I think the biggest application from the book is to make shalom to make peace a goal that you actively pursue 
in your relationships, especially in a romantic relationship. In contrast, it seems like in contemporary society and in the media and in movies, there's a real glorification of the snide remark, of snarkiness, of sort of the sideways put down that just escalates into just outright nastiness between people that theoretically love each other. That is not funny. That's not entertaining, and it is destructive to any relationship. In our heart of hearts, we're all so much more tender and easily hurt than sometimes we even let people know. Always treat each other with honor, with kindness. I know sometimes, and it's so weird, but it's it's difficult to do that with those we are closest to, with those we love the most. That's where we need to make a very special effort. And in many ways, in our closest relationships, our romantic relationships, our family relationships, this is a training ground for all of life. And we must remember that It isn't sort of just this special icing on the cake and how we're supposed to feel towards people we're closest to. But Micah 6.8 reminds us where the prophet says, And what does the Lord require? And God answers to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Kindness and humility are requirements, not just simply good rational advice or optional attitudes or this is what you ought to do to have a happy marriage or relationship or whatever. No, that should be the foundation of how we treat everyone and especially, I would say, those we love. And so in in the book Celebrating Love, the highest thing that she says is, I'm someone that he found shalom with. Now, sadly, the, yeah, the Song of Solomon shows us he may have started out loving one woman passionately and peacefully, but that certainly was not the continuing pattern of his life. He married woman after woman. In fact, he married 300 women. It says he had 300 wives, and even that wasn't enough for him. He had an additional 700 concubines. Now, many commentators talk about, well, he did this because the marriages were done for political expediency. First, he marries Pharaoh daughter and that was a really big deal and then the daughters of various kings and but no 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 whatever the reasons these women were not God's plan for a peaceful life and we certainly don't see that he had it Let's go on now to the book of Proverbs. Solomon wrote and compiled many of the Proverbs. He's not the sole author of the entire book. He refers actually to the sayings of the wise in it, in, and we're sort of led to believe that these were things that other people said. In fact, the final two chapters identify Augur and Lemuel as two of the wise men wise man who contributed to it. Now, there were lots of compilations of wise sayings in the literature of that time. It seems like I was thinking about it, that sort of self-help books have, have always been popular, but these are the Proverbs, these are the wise sayings that God chose for us to remember. Now, it's interesting if we read the first part of it closely, where they came from in Solomon's life, because in Proverbs 4, it says, young men, listen to me as you would to your father, listen and grow wise, for I speak the truth, don't turn away, for I too 
was once a son, tenderly loved by my mother as an only child and the companion of my father. He told me never to forget his words. And this is, we know David speaking to him. If you follow them, he said, you will have a long and happy life. Learn to be wise, he said, and develop good judgment and common sense. I cannot overemphasize this point. Now, I was thinking about it, and I realized that, you know, given his parents' instruction, it was not a surprise that when God appeared to him when he was young and said, what do you want? He responds with, I want wisdom. Because his parents had told him, seek that above everything else. And he took their advice. It had been instilled into him as a child. An application. Children will tend to value what their parents value. Let them know the children, your biological children, children that you are around in your life in church. Let them know how important God's word is to you, how true wisdom is important, and they will remember that. Now, on interpreting advice from Proverbs, keep in mind, and Proverbs is a book that a lot of people interpret incorrectly. Keep this in mind. Proverbs are wise sayings. They are not promises. This is really, really important. Given all things being equal, to follow the advice in Proverbs is the best way to live your life. Proverbs show what is pleasing to God in many practical areas of life. However, Just because you follow the advice in Proverbs is not a guarantee that you will experience a problem-free life, nor is it a book of formulas. If you do that, this, that will automatically follow. If you do this, God promises that. It just doesn't work that way. For example, here is one of the primary misinterpretation examples from Proverbs. In Proverbs 22.6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that's really good advice, but we know that kids from good families sometimes turn out really badly. But you have a much better chance of them turning out well if they're trained well as children and if you live a godly life before them. They don't have much of a chance at all if you never take them to church, if you never read the Bible to them, if you never pray together, if you never do any of the things that please God. They're not going to come up with it on their own. There's a much greater chance that they will follow God if not maybe for during some rebellious years, but they will at least have a pattern. They will know what the way to live consists of. But God does not interfere with free will. There's much evil in the world and no guarantee of success. But yet Proverbs gives us the standards for pleasing God, no matter what the outcome. And sadly, if we don't follow God's ways, we end up with life represented in Ecclesiastes. That's the result of not following God's ways. Here we see the deterioration of a man who had everything, Solomon. We know from the last chapter of the book, he wrote this in the last of his life when he was a very old man. And oh, it's it's a horrible, sad book. It appears to be his final commentary on his life. And it opens with vanity of vanities in one translation, meaningless, meaningless. And in the Living Bible, it says, in my opinion, nothing is worthwhile. Everything is futile. The book then goes on to describe all that Solomon did to come to that conclusion. 
he first, he has all these explorations for meaning. He begins by exploring wisdom. But from the beginning, it's a hint of his problem as he refers to, and will often use this phrase, that he searches for wisdom for everything under the sun. <laughs> and what he's saying, he's looking for it in earthly things, not from God's viewpoint. He's looking at it at what he can see, what he can discover. He goes on in chapter 2 to say, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. And on and on and on and on. He had the money, he had the power, he had the resources, and as he said, he denied himself nothing. Now, on interpreting Ecclesiastes, remember its wisdom literature with the ending, the summary, the conclusion is what you remember out of the book. And similar to Job, if you pull verses out of context, they're not to be taken at face value or as what God wants us to do. There might be scattered bits of good advice throughout the book, but overall, the words are of a cynical, wasted life. And I really, this is just my little, maybe it's a bad attitude problem. I really have a problem with pastors who pull a bunch of verses out of Ecclesiastes and say, this is how we're supposed to live. Yeah, no, it's the book is about you know, this really wasted, sad individual, though there are little tidbits that are are rather interesting and somewhat true. For example, this one, uh, do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. Well, yeah, that's true, but, you know, that's kind of lousy advice. Um, Now, we might ask, why is the Bible filled with things like this, with bad examples? Keep in mind, the Bible not only tells us how we should live, but it is an honest reporting of what happens when we don't do what God wants. Ecclesiastes gives people problems because they ask, how can some of the things that are in the book be from God? You know, it's basically the idea of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you might die. Everything is useless. You know, what good is there? All of that. The reason that it's from God, it's important to remember that these are true statements in that they're true reports of what happened. This is what Solomon actually thought. This is what he felt. But they aren't examples of what we should do. It's precisely the opposite. It shows what happens when someone totally focuses on himself and things that make him happy. Here is the example of a man who had everything, but he chose to squander it all just on himself, and he ends up a pitiful, cynical, sad old man. Here's his final advice. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. That is so true. Sadly, however, Solomon was not the only one who suffered because of his intense selfishness. He forgot why he was king, why he was given the gifts he was given. It wasn't for him only. It wasn't for him to do all this exploration of everything and all that. I mean, that was so arrogant, so selfish. In contrast, his father David 
the way it describes his view of the kingship in Second Samuel 5.12, it says, Then David knew the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. In the lesson on David, we talked about how he was a man after God's own heart. And this is a primary example of it. God made David king for the sake of his people. And he he does that for all of the different kings, for all of the people in leadership there to serve. David, though, was aware of it and he lived it. We don't have examples of David working to enrich himself. He reflected God's style of leadership, which is an As I was thinking about it, I thought, it's astounding, it's amazing that our God, the creator of all things, think about this a minute, this is... This is just, this boggles the mind that our God, our great and powerful God, that his view of leadership is that of a servant. This is not a small issue. Pride, putting yourself first, even if you think you're in a position to do it, that is a characteristic of Satan. He is the one who said, as reported in Isaiah, Lucifer, the fallen one, the morning star, when he said, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. And God says, no, you won't, you will be cast down. But you see, that attitude is satanic. Putting ourselves first, above others, that is not the example we should follow. But instead, we're to be like Jesus. In Philippians 2, it again, this is just one of those passages that I, I, I can't even comprehend. But it says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He applies this attitude to us. He says, you know, this is how you're supposed to live. After washing the disciples' feet before he went to the cross, he sums up what our attitude should be, what his attitude was. This, we might say, is his guide to godly leadership, where he says in John 13, when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Our application, of course. Happiness, fulfillment as a leader, comes with service. We're never, ever, ever put in a position of leadership or power or wealth or anything else to enrich ourselves. That's not why we're to do it. We are to serve. But Solomon didn't do that. 
his building projects need more wealth. He begins trading with different nations and buying and selling and getting gold and all sorts of different things. He conscripts laborers. He begins to heavily, heavily tax the people. Now that taxation wears on the people. And eventually after he dies, it's one of the primary reasons the kingdom splits in two as his son and heir, Rehoboam, will not lower their taxes. He does build the temple, but following the dedication of it, God's not entirely impressed, and he gives him this warning. God appears to him a second time. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time, as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and the plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I have commanded and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for in my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. Unfortunately, the people started down this path in part because excessive taxation wasn't Solomon's only problem. In 1 Kings 11, it says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. (laughs) Notice there, I switched the number earlier. I said he had 300 wives and 700 concubines, but it was the other way around. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. In other words, a thousand women in his life, and what a mess, uh, regardless of how you break it down. But anyway, moving along, because this actually really is very serious. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Amorites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill, east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. This was not a little thing. And it, if you, you study the past and how these idols were actually worshipped, the most horrible, horrible thing is the worship of Moloch. And it says he did this. And what that was is they would offer a live child to this idol. And the idol stretched out its its hands, their big metal arms, and they would roll back into the belly of the idol where there was a burning fire, and the child would be burnt alive. Solomon participated in that. His wealth, his extravagance continued. Nations came to hear him, to give him gifts. God did not retract his promise of great blessing, but it was so wasted. 
He could have given these nations a witness of the greatness of Jehovah God and invited them to worship the one true God. Instead, he worshipped their gods. And because of that, God appears to him a third time, but this is for judgment. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is what happened. After Solomon died, when the people came to Rehoboam, his son, asking for relief, the older advisors told him, If today you will be a servant to these people, remember, that's God's way of leading, and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But he ignored them, and he threatened them. He said, My little finger is going to be heavier than my father's waist. I'm going to give you huge burdens. The people rebelled. The kingdom split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In the north there were all evil kings. In the south the descendants of David, some good, some bad. Along with them, though, we have the great prophets. And in our next lesson and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we're going to have this interweaving. Things are going to shift greatly, and I'm going to do a a big introductory lesson on this. But it shifts now then to alternating between stories of the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, and the prophets that constantly attempted to call them back to God. Now let's look at the ending of the man who had it all. Because he chose to squander it on himself, he ended up not only a delusioned, pitiful old man, but he forfeited the opportunity to influence many for the sake of Jehovah God and laid the foundation for the moral and eventual physical destruction of his nation. There are many applications here. Power, wealth, anything of importance is never given to us to only enrich us. All gifts of wisdom, power, and love are to be used in the service of others. An old hymn says it well. How I praise thee, precious Savior, that thy love laid hold on me. Thou hast saved and cleansed and filled me, that I thy channel be. Channels only blessed master but with all thy wondrous power flowing through us thou canst use us every day and every hour channels only that's what we are for jesus to come through all the gifts god gives us are to be used as channels for his love and healing to flow through to our world so what are we to do This is a big challenge for all of us. Take an honest inventory of what God's given you. List your material blessings, your resources, the relationships that you have. 
Clarify your spiritual gifts. I've talked about this in other lessons, but I'm sure at your church or online, you can take tests, you can ask people. Find out what you specifically are called to do in the kingdom of God. Make an honest assessment of how you are using what you've been given spiritually, materially, in all areas. How much of what you have is just spent on you? How much of it is spent on the kingdom of God? I'm not talking just about money, but in your time, your focus, all of those areas, how much do you spend on the kingdom of God, on sharing His peace, His love, the knowledge of Him, and in doing specific acts of sacrifice and kindness in our world? Pray for wisdom and courage in how to be like our Lord, who emptied Himself to serve. We all have work to do. That's all for now. Please check out the additional resources at www.bible805.com and please tell your friends about the materials that are available there. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pren, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.